Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. So we've been doing this series called Resilient Church. We've been in this for more than a month now, and we're on week six, and week seven, will, next week will be our last week. And that here's what it is. If you haven't been with us, let me explain. Uh, in the book of Revelation, chapters one through three, Jesus gives John a message, and he writes seven letters to seven different churches. And so we're on the sixth church this week, and we've talked about being the, this resilient church. In all of it, he just wants to build up the church and make the church resilient. Why? Because they're living in really tough times. Persecution at the end of the first century was coming in at all-time high. And he just wanted to encourage the church to say, these are the things you're doing really well. So let me just kind of review for the churches. Remember the first one? It was what I called the loveless church. He's like, man, you've done a lot of things really well, but you've forsaken your first love for me. And then there was the suffering church. Then there was the compromising church. And they were compromising in their theology. And then there was the permissive church. And then Josh talked about the sleeping church. When Jesus wrote to him and said, I need you to wake up. This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the shaky church, all right? The shaky church. It means that this church was actually... It was discouraged, and we're going to read this in a minute. In, in the middle of this letter to this church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia in Asia Minor, it says this, I know that you have little strength. And the Greek word means this, that church was worn out. They were small, they were tired, they were discouraged. Now, I have some really good news for you. Um, if you're discouraged today, you're going to find great hope. Just a question for you real quick. How many of you are actually encouraged? I mean, you're doing well, and you're, you came in here today just like, man, life is good, and I'm super pumped about being here. Like, I'm doing good. All the encouraged people say amen. All right, you can leave. We ain't talking to you today. All right? All the discouraged people, and maybe you don't say like, yeah, I'm just an overwhelmingly discouraged person, but maybe there's something in your life that is discouraging I would say all the discouraged people say amen, but you don't say amen when you're discouraged. So all the discouraged people sit there and be silent. Look at all the discouraged people in the room, right? I don't know about you, but there's typically some area of my life that's trying to discourage me. And if that's you today, man, I've got such good news for you. Um, But here's what's interesting. Um, In these letters, if you've been tracking with us, you'll know that there's like this pattern where Jesus introduces himself to the church. He says, I am this. And then he says, here's my commendation for you. As a church, you've been doing this really well. And then what follows the commendation? Do you remember? It's criticism or a correction. You know what's interesting? When he writes a letter to the discouraged church, he writes zero criticism. There's no uh, correction He's like, listen, you don't need to be corrected right now. All you need to do today is you just need to be built up. So I'm about to build you up. And that's the the message. In fact, Jesus, in this letter that he's about to write them, that I'm going to read to you, he actually gives them six promises. 
Whenever you read the words, I will, and then Jesus follows with, I'm going to do this, I will do this for you, those are six promises. He gives more promises to the discouraged church in Philadelphia than he does to any of the other churches. Now, all that being said, before this, I, I do have to give you a little bit of background about why this church was so discouraged. Here's the first one. This is why they were a shaky church. Literally, they had earthquakes. <laughs> and in 17 AD, they had one of the most catastrophic earthquakes in their region that was ever known. There's this uh, historian and geographer named uh, Strabo from the first century, and he writes about how these homes that are built on columns, they would collapse in an earthquake. He writes, the city of Philadelphia was ever subject to earthquakes. Incessantly, the walls of the houses are cracked, different parts of the city being uh, thus affected at different times for this reason. But few people live in the city. Most of them spend their lives as farmers in the country since they have a fertile soil, yet one may be surprised at the few that they are so fond of the place when their dwellings are so insecure. The reality is they, in that first century, they had two major earthquakes and almost daily had aftershocks. Church in California, we get this, right? I mean, you, if you've ever ridden through, anyone in here never been through an earthquake? Never? Come on, trans, you've all experienced it? Amazing. There's always like transplants to the Bay Area. They're like, no, I'm waiting for my first earthquake. They say it like they're excited. And then they experience it like, no, no, thank you. Um, Here's what's interesting about this place. People actually stopped living in the city. They were so afraid to live in these stone-built homes that would fall on them that they actually lived outside the city in a much more stick-built type of home that wouldn't kill them if it collapsed. So they're earthquake-shaky, but they're also culturally shaky. Um, this city of Philadelphia, it actually was positioned as a missionary city. I know I just did air quotes. People don't do that anymore, but whatever. A missionary city. What I mean by that, it's not a Christian missionary city. It was a Greek missionary city. They planted Philadelphia near three different kingdoms so that the Greek culture would go to Philadelphia and then through the trade routes with these different kingdoms, the Greek culture would spread to them. So get this, the church of Philadelphia is planted right there where all these three kingdoms and the Greek culture converge. It created a culture where Christians were the minority. They're surrounded by this powerful Greek culture and culture from other communities. You ever feel like that? You know how many people go to church in San Jose? About 4%. 4% of our valley. We've been called the most de-churched and unchurched place in America. Welcome to church. You're a minority. People won't hold the values or beliefs that you have. And in this case, it became discouraging to the church. Now, they also became politically and economically shaky. Here's what's interesting about Philadelphia. They had this unbelievable soil that if you planted vineyards, they did really well. The area of Philadelphia was known as having the best wine in the entire uh, Roman kingdom. And um, the emperor, this letter was written about 96 AD, and the emperor of that time was a guy named Domitian. He was an egomaniac. And he decided, no, 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 Rome needs to have the reputation for the best winemakers. So you know what he did? 
He had all the vineyards around Philadelphia uprooted. What does that do to your economy? This whole, it wasn't just the church that was shaky. It was the entire city. Um, They were also religiously shaky. The irony of the word Philadelphia, you all know what it means, right? It means brotherly love. But in this place, the church actually had really significant enemies. The Greeks didn't like them. The Jews believed that they were traitors, and the Romans persecuted them. Everything about their existence was uncertain, insecure, unstable. But this small group of people in the city of Philadelphia had discovered the truth about who Jesus is, that he really was a man who walked the earth, died on a cross, and proclaimed before he died that he would rise again from the dead. And he did, and people saw him. And they believed this, that their relationship with God was only had through Jesus. And so this small church that put their hope in Jesus, that lived in these unstable, shaky times, Jesus had a word of encouragement for you, for them. And I want to say this, if you need encouragement today, I hope you'll hear his voice as we read this story. So here we go, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. If you got a Bible, open it up. Um, if you don't even know where Revelation is and you don't have a Bible with you, um, grab one out of the chair in front of you. It's the last book, okay? So just open it up. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 goes like this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Here comes his commendation. I know that you have little strength. There it is. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of the trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, There's a lot in here. And some of this we're not going to get to. Some of this, even if we got to it, I'm not sure it's going to become totally clear to us. But here's what I, I want to do. I gave you the discouragement hook so that you could place your understanding of this passage on that so this will make sense. Jesus is writing a letter to encourage a shaky church. So let's talk about the shaky church and how he encourages it. Number one is this. Jesus replaces closed doors with open doors. The text, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, here's what's interesting about discouraged people. They believe that every door is closed. (laughs) They just don't believe that there's a lot of opportunities in front of them. Have you ever talked to someone who's discouraged? They talk about being stuck And you might 
look at them and listen to their story and go, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about, like, here's some open doors. And they're like, no, 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 we can't. I can't. It's just impossible. Discouraged people don't see open doors. And this letter to the church, um, this church, they have a mission to share Jesus with people. But they're overwhelmed by the situation that they're living in. Now, you might be able to relate with this, that you've invited people to church. You've shared your story about how you came to become a Christian with people. And your friends and maybe your family have made it clear, not really interested. That's good for you. It's not for me. And maybe they let you know that by not coming to church. They're like, nah, nah, just not interested. And maybe you've become discouraged and maybe you think, you know what? They're never gonna. I'm never gonna have the ability to see my family come to know Christ. I'm never gonna see my neighbors come to Christ. And maybe you're a little discouraged in that. Can I say this? You might be just looking at closed doors and God is about to open a new one for you. But because of your discouragement, will you see it? Um, I want to get personal for a moment. Um, Is there something that's discouraging you? Is there something in your life that is discouraging you? Um, Maybe it is a lack of friendship for you. Maybe it's your parenting of your kids. Maybe there's your family is just a source of discouragement. Maybe there's financial discouragement. There's job discouragement. Maybe it's your education. I think when people get discouraged, just everything looks like a closed door and you just don't see opportunity around you. We can't do that. That won't work. We've never tried that or we've already tried that. Those people won't listen to us. They're never actually going to change. Maybe the voice is not about them. Maybe it's about you. I'm not, I'm just too small. I'm not good enough. I'm not capable enough. The opportunities just aren't there. We're not big enough. We're not powerful enough. Our finances aren't strong enough. And maybe this is like your personal story, or maybe, I mean, this letter is written to a church, not to an individual. Maybe that's our church story. Too small, too insignificant. Jesus' words are this. Here it is. These are the words of him who is holy and true. If you got a paper Bible and pen on you, underline that in your Bible, holy and true. It means this. There's nothing false or evil about Jesus. There's nothing false or evil or bad about where he is leading us. The truth is this. Jesus can absolutely be trusted to lead you if you'll walk through the open door that he makes. And then you get this weird phrase, uh, who holds the key of David. There's a reference here. You might write this down. It's the references to Isaiah 22. And it's about, there used to be a corrupt official in the courthouse. And in the king's court, um, that corrupt official was going to be replaced by this other official. Let me just read this story to you. Don't turn there. In Isaiah 22, verse 20, it says, In that day I will summon my servant, Elohim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fashion your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. Listen to this. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Do you see how similar that is to the book of Revelation? I I think what he's doing is he's telling this story about this guy in the Old Testament who literally is going to have keys to the city and keys to the temple. 
and, and keys to the place of worship. And God says, he's got the key to everything. So he has my authority and he has the keys to open it. And Jesus is saying this, I'm the one who has the keys to open any door. Nothing's impossible for me. So if you're in a situation where you feel stuck and there's not an open door in front of you, Jesus is like, you don't know who I am. I got the key to David. You see that whole story? We know that Jesus comes through the line of David. So that phrase in in Isaiah chapter 22 over the years became known as, oh, Jesus is going to be the one who has the keys to the kingdom. And Jesus is reminding us here, there's no one more trustworthy than him. And there's no one more powerful than him. Question, are you asking him for an open door? And are you looking for an open door? See, I think the most important phrase, go back to the text there. I think the most important word in this phrase, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. You know what the most important word is in that? It's see. It means behold, Check this out. It's a loose translation of the Greek text. There's a door that I am opening for you. Look at it. Look for it. Behold it. Why? So you can walk through it. Well, sometimes we just look back and go, can't do that. Can't do that. That's not an opportunity. I can't do that. Maybe somebody else could do that, but I'm not good enough to do that. And we close all the doors. And Jesus is like, no, 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 there's an open door right there in front of you. Now, I use this phrase sometimes in talking about open doors. Um, God can't steer a parked car. So sometimes you got to get the car moving and then let God steer it through the open door. Let me give you a different illustration. I was in the airport on Friday. You get off the plane to get your luggage at SJC here, right? You know, you go to those things, you got to... You go to the closed doors, right? And they got the green lights on them to tell you like, oh, they're, they're not totally closed. But what do you have to do to make that door open? You got to walk towards it like it's open. And right before you get there, it goes, Whoop! most of the time. There have been a couple times I've been like, whoa. But that thing opens. Why? Because you walked towards it. Question, are you willing to say, God, where's the open door? And if he says like, I want you to go do this, will you start walking in that direction? God, I want you to restore my marriage. But maybe you're sitting there like, yeah, but I'm not gonna do anything. I'm gonna wait for that person to come to me. I want a relationship with my kid, but I'm gonna wait for them to come to me. I want my neighbor to receive Christ, but I'm gonna wait for them to come to me. What if God is telling you this? Go step in that direction and watch me open the door. Come on. I just wonder if so many of us get so discouraged that we're afraid the door might not open that we just stay still. Um, What exactly is an open door? Here's what I think it is. I think it's an opportunity. But can I ask you this question real quick? Um, When I've been talking about open doors, what have you been thinking about? I mean, what comes to mind for you? Um, Maybe it's a financial open door. Maybe you were discontent at, at the workplace that you're at right now, and you're like, yeah, I just need that, that job open door. Um, and I'm not saying those are wrong. I just want to give us a word of caution. 
The word of caution is actually in your notes, and I want to be careful of this. Please don't replace God's open door with the American dream. What I mean by that is this. The American dream. I mean, 4th of July weekend, right? Celebrating freedom, America. I don't know why I say it that way. It's just weird. American dream is like self-sufficiency, right? Be self-sufficient. Happy family. A fully funded retirement plan, right? And cars that are new enough that they don't break down. I mean, it's the American dream. And I wonder sometimes if we think about God's open door and like, God, would you give me this open door? And it's actually an open door to the American dream as opposed to the open door that Jesus is referring to here. See, the open door of this church was they were on a mission to share Jesus with people. Um, I think about the American dream and all the things that we want and need. Oh, air quotes again, weird. Uh, comes to mind this verse that Jesus taught that he just said, seek first the kingdom of God. Prioritize Jesus. Prioritize the mission of the church. Prioritize the things I'm telling you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, the necessities of life, will be added to you as well. So this letter is actually written to this discouraged church, not just individuals, and their mission, we describe our church this way, like we're, we're going to be transforming lives. We, we want to be um, displaying the irresistibility of Jesus to people so that lives are transformed. They probably would have said it differently, but they're about making disciples, so are we. And the open door, whenever the phrase an open door is referred to in the New Testament, it's always about a ministry opportunity. It's about the advancement of the gospel. Just a quick question for you. Um, I, I don't mean to sound too convicting on this at all, but just be careful. I want to caution you with replacing, God, what do you want me to do with my life with, God, how are you going to fund my 401k? We have real needs and things that are discouraging us. But I wonder if at this moment God is saying, you know, you're having these, uh, discouraged, you're discouraged about some things that are not the primary thing. Here's point number two. For this discouraged church, this shaky church, Jesus replaces weakness with strength and hope. Here's his text. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. What a compliment. Hey, I know you're weak and I know you're struggling, but man, you've stayed faithful to me. Verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will, here's a promise, I will also keep you from the hour of the trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. And then he says this, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So what does all this mean? Um, I want to keep two things straight here. Some people take this reference where it says, um, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is going to come on the whole world. They take that as like an eschatological end of days. It's still in the future kind of thing. Like I'm going to grab my people, rapture the church up off the earth, and then a seven-year tri uh, tribulation period will occur. Other people take it this way. That, that phrasing was actually written to the church in Philadelphia to say, there's going to be great suffering and tribulation around the whole world of the Roman Empire, but I'm going to place my hand of protection over that church in Philadelphia so that you might not experience all the suffering that all the other churches are experiencing. It's really interesting. Um, 
the church in Smyrna, the suffering church, one of Jesus's words of encouragement was, hey, I want you to hang in there, even though you're gonna suffer and some of you are even gonna die for your faith. Wow, we don't want that story applied to us, do we? But all of a sudden we read this and we're like, oh yeah, Jesus, protect me. Pluck me out of the, the, the tribulations and the suffering that's gonna come. Like, here's what I think this means. I, I think this really was a message to the Philadelphia church that says there's gonna be some things that happen that other people will suffer from, but you won't. Other churches, Christians will suffer, but I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna protect you in ways that you will never see. Can I, can I tell you, I think that that's actually true for us too. That God protects us in ways that we will never see. And yet it's so interesting that he never promises us that he'll protect us from everything. He promises us trouble in the world. But in this moment, he promises them, I will take care of you. Now, I want you to notice this. I, I wrote this in your notes and I just wrote it this way. Our strength is never enough. And will never be enough. And what I mean by that is this. When you're discouraged, people tell you, buck up, little camper. I, they don't use words like that, but, you know, they'll say it differently. Hey, you got to be strong. You can do this. Can I just say this? No, you can't. Not apart from Jesus. There's stuff we're going to go through that'll break us, that'll hurt us that won't leave us the same people we were before. But I think what Jesus is saying is our strength is never enough because we rely on God's gifts of longevity and security. It is his security that he gives us. It's his strength that he gives us. If we want to do life on our own, there's going to be things that will wreck us. But I think what he's saying is this, rely on me. And lean into me for that kind of strength and that kind of gift. Um, the command that Jesus gives is this. Hold on to what you have. What, what do I have? Well, you have Jesus. You have this faith in him that is built not upon hope or a myth. But your faith in Jesus, your relationship with Jesus is based on the fact that he claimed he was the son of God. He claimed he would die on a cross and three days later be resurrected. And that event historically took place. And this is 70 years, no, I'm sorry, 60 years after that historical event, people still alive who experienced it. John, the one who saw him alive, is writing the letter. He's saying, hold on to what you have. I think in the midst of our discouragement, hold on to Jesus. Don't abandon your faith. Don't abandon your spiritual practices. Don't abandon your church. Stay connected. Stay plugged in. Jesus said this, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Anyone who's plugged into me, you can do all things. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We get fascinated with our strength when really it's God's strength working in us. Here's the third thing. I need to move on from this and we're running out of time. Jesus replaces shame with honor. Verse nine says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. That's a pretty big word. Let me explain that in a minute. Who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. 
the Romans and the Jews. The Jews had protection under the Romans. Everybody else was expected to bow down and worship the emperor, except the Jews. They had a treaty with Rome. And Christians were thought to fall under the Jewish umbrella. But there were Jews in the church in Philadelphia who were exposing these Christians, saying, no, no, they're not one of us. They would like literally push them towards the Romans going, no, no, they're not one of us. Therefore, the Romans could persecute them. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. By the way, this is not an anti-Semitic thing. He's saying those Jewish people are exposing you, leaving you vulnerable. And they're saying, listen, God doesn't love you. Only we are of God. And Christians, you're not. And Jesus says, I'm going to make them come, fall at your feet, and acknowledge that the Lord God has loved you. Um, It makes me ask this question. Who are we actually trying to impress? Is your discouragement based on trying to impress somebody who is not God? We're trying to fit in. We're trying to belong. And this is somewhat connected to point number four, that Jesus replaces rejection with love. <laughs> this group in this, this Philadelphia church was totally rejected by the Greeks, by the Jews, by the Romans. They didn't feel a belonging with anyone. But Jesus replaces rejection with love. Listen to the text in verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he's not actually turning them into pillars of stone, okay? What he's saying is this. The most foundational, the strongest part of this temple, that pillar, you're going to be permanent. You're in my family. Nothing can move you. It says this. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. Okay. What is all of this like Jesus tagging stuff? Like, he's like, I'm gonna write my name on you. I'm gonna write the name of the city. Like, he's writing his name on everything. Here's what I want you to get. They were rejected by everyone. And he's like, no, 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 you belong to me. I won't let you go. I put my name on you. I I put the name of the new city that's gonna be coming down on you. Why? Because you're gonna be there with me. Listen, if you are discouraged and you put your faith in Christ, you're with him. He loves you. No matter what rejection you face on earth, even though it hurts, and it hurts, amen? He will always love you. He has a place for you. He wrote his name on you. You have a nickname in high school? Or let's go back to a meaner time. Middle school. Middle school? Mean people, man. Particularly the girls. Come on, you know it. Do you remember your nickname? They probably weren't flattering, right? Um, They never usually are. Because in middle school, the whole game is to rip people down so that people feel better about themselves. It's so weird. Maybe you gave yourself a name. Like failure. Broken. Incapable. Not smart. Dumb. Broken. Jesus is like, Why are you listening to those names? I put my name on you. My name on you is beloved, cherished, child of God. Not perfect, but he literally calls us his masterpiece in Ephesians 2.10. Do you really believe that about yourself? That you're not unworthy of love, but you're worthy of love. That you can be loved, that you should be loved. 
God sent his son to the cross because of his value for you. Do you know that? I just wonder this question. I mean, whose love are we pursuing? It's important to have family that loves you. God created family in the opening chapters of Genesis. It's important to have a church that loves you. But are we pursuing so many people's love that we forgot that the greatest pursuit of love is our pursuit of God because he's pursued us in the cross? Do you know this, that he loves you? Let me get to this fifth and final thing and wrap this up. Jesus replaces lies with truth. Remember how this all started? He opens this letter. He says, this is who I am. These are the words of him who is holy and true. You can trust me, and I'm going to lead you to a good place. And then the letter ends with this, verse 13. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever got ears, raise your hand if you got ears. Good. Then let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the question. Whose voice are you listening to? Every single letter that John writes to each church, it always ends with, those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So question, who are we listening to? Last week at uh, my nephew's wedding, we were in La Grande, Oregon. You know where that is? It's right next to the middle of nowhere, Oregon, okay? You actually have to fly into Boise in order to get to La Grande, Oregon. So we get there, and the guy doing the wedding, his name is Jeff. And he comes up to me, and he finds out that I'm a pastor and that I work at Church on the Hill in San Jose. And he comes up to me, and he says, my uncle lives right at the bottom of the hill. And I go, in Birdland? He goes, yeah, in Birdland. No one knows it's Birdland unless those that like, live there, all the streets are named after birds, okay? Some of you don't even know that. You learned something today. He was my uncle was actually really one of the main, like one of the main people who was there in the 70s who really helped that church get established on the hill. And he told me his name. I didn't recognize his name. And then he kind of went on to say, oh yeah, and he talked about our church. And I was like, I'm in the Grand Oregon. And this guy like knows our church, his uncles. Can I tell you how many times this happens to me? I mean, all the time. Oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm pastor of church. Where? San Jose. Oh, yeah, where? Church on the hill. Is that that one that looks like Space Mountain? Yes. And then what follows is they tell me a story about our reputation. And sometimes it's great. My kids went to the school there. It was like the greatest. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And other times they tell me their story of the reputation of our church, and it's not flattering. Why am I telling you this? This is a letter written to a church that was discouraged, that was shaky. I run across opportunities like this. And I can be honest, sometimes it can be discouraging. You feel like the small church in this overwhelming culture. And you ask the question, God, what is the open door for this church? What is the thing that's going to help transform massive amount of people's lives? And I can have a choice. I can either listen to people like Jeff, 
who might have a positive or a negative opinion of this church. Or I can say, if I'm the one who has ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to this church, then God, speak to me. What's the open door? Where do you want us to walk? Where do you want us to go? Because I believe that Jesus has a hope and a future for this church. But see, the pastor is only one person in the church. Do you believe that God has a plan and a hope and a future for this church that we need to walk through that open door? If so, we're all got to work together for that because this is not a discouraged church. This is not a shaky church. This is God's church. Finish with this. There's a church application to this and there's a personal application to this. This is written to churches, not individuals in this context. But I don't think it's wrong to simply ask this question. If you have discouragement in your life right now, whose voice are you listening to? Maybe it's your own voice. The saying, I can't. The opportunity's not there. There's so many obstacles in front of me. It's been really interesting. I've had, um, in the last year, I've had multiple conversations that all kind of go the same way. Pastor, I just need a change. And what the context of the story is always something's gone wrong. Maybe it's my own poor choices, things that have happened to me. But the people around me know me as the broken person. They know me by my bad choices. They know me by, by, by the brokenness of my life. I just need a change of environment. People who don't know me that way. And I always ask the same question. Like, so do you honestly meet people who just reference your old life all the time? Well, no, not really. It's just that when I walk in the room, I feel like they look at me as, oh, that's the broken person. That's the, the divorced person. That's the partying person. That's the drunk person. That's the, and I'm like, but no one says that to you. No, it's just when I walk in the room, I feel like that. And I've just wondered, well, you go to the new place and you can leave all those people behind. The problem is you're taking your own voices with you because you don't believe this last verse or you haven't enacted this last word that says, the person who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit of God is telling you. You're new. You're a brand new creation in Christ. You're a masterpiece, God's masterpiece. God has equipped you and made you for his mission. You're not broken or dumb or incapable. God is empowering you. I just wanted to ask the question, are you listening to the wrong voices? Maybe they're the voices of discouragement in your life. And so I would just say this. Maybe you need to open the word of God and start reading. And like my niece did two weeks ago, and she reads this from Acts chapter 22, and it says, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. And she calls me. I just read this. Baptize me. I'm like, let's roll. Maybe you need to listen to the voice of God leading you and guiding you because I guarantee you there's an open door he wants you to walk through. You don't have to be the discouraged person. And we don't have to be the discouraged church if we will listen to his voice. I want to pray, um, but I want to give you a couple things to pray about. Three things. One is for you about your life. What's discouraging you? I want you to have an opportunity to pray about that. I want you to do this too, though. Pray for our church. This is not a discouraged church. This church that keeps looking for the open doors that God wants us to walk through. Let me give you two more things. So actually, there's four now. I want you to pray for, um, pray for Tim and Pam Wood, okay? Um, 
Tim and, uh, and Pam, Tim is the lead pastor over at Evergreen Community Church, good friends of ours. Uh, Kelly and I have gone to Israel with uh, Tim and Pam on two occasions. Love them. They're great people. Um, this is public, and so I'm not violating any confidence here, but Tim has been diagnosed with a, a tumor in his brain that is inoperable, and um, the prognosis is not good, Okay. Now, I know Tim pretty well, and I know that he's going to be good with whatever door God leads him to walk through. God might lead Tim to walk through the doors of heaven in the near future. God also might open a door for him to be healed. I don't know. My theology from the scriptures is that we don't command or demand that God do something, but we request. And so today, would you pray for Tim and his family? Pray for healing. Pray for peace. Pray for strength. And let's see what door God opens. So I want you to pray for him. Here's the second guy I want you to pray for. His name is Kevin. Okay? Got a message? He's a partner of ours that works in a part of a world that I cannot tell you about because there is hostility against Christians there. And there's been some things that have come against him in the last couple weeks. Um, And I can't tell you any more about it because I don't want this... I don't want this being used against him at some point. But I need you to pray for Kevin because he's kind of got himself in a, in a situation. Nothing that he did wrong, but the government is um, coming after him. And I need you to pray. He needs you to pray for him. He's one of our people, okay? So pray for Kevin and his family, that God would bring truth, that God would bring mercy, and uh, that God would open a door for him. Because the government's coming after him. I know I'm being a little vague, but I need to be. And so I want you to pray right now as we end. Pray for Kevin. Pray for Tim. His wife, Pam. I want you to pray for you too. The voice of God would ring in your ears. Not the voice of discouragement. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray for just a minute. God, today we just ask that you would give us ears to hear your voice. And God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know the right next step for us. Not just what we want, but we, we wouldn't call our, our wants and desires your voice, but truly, God, we would distinguish your voice. And God, may you grant this church your favor so that we can see the open doors for ministry that you provide us. And Lord, that doesn't mean for the pastor. I pray that for everyone sitting here today, listening online, that they would look for open doors of ministry to tell their story, to invite people to church. And God, I I once again just lift up Tim and Pam to you. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And I know that they're praying that verse over and over again. God, renew their strength. Let them not be discouraged. And for Kevin and his family, God, provide a way, a way forward. I pray you'd give him favor with the government and the politicians that are coming after him, God. Thank you that we don't have to walk in discouragement. We can walk in new opportunities and new hope. And if you believe that, would you say amen?